And now, the Andy Greenwald Podcast. Andy, Andy. Welcome to the Grantland Network. My name is Andy Greenwald. What a terrific day here in New York City because I am joined by a sterling comedian, writer, actor, performer, and I would like to think friend of this podcast, Andy Daly. Yeah. Welcome. Do I? These these red lights mean something, don't yeah, they? Yeah, just they're going to be scanning I'm going to try and ignore them. That's fine. Uh, Andy, you're here because you're a nice guy and you're here to talk to me about the second season of Review on Comedy Central, which yes. airs Thursdays at 10 p.m. 9 Central. 9 Central. Yeah. This is one of the funniest shows on TV. I'm very excited to talk to you about it. Thank you. I have to begin in a different place, though. I have to begin by thanking you. Oh, you're welcome. Because, you. I mean... <laughs> It could be a blanket. You're welcome. But this is good because you have been very kind to me in a number a number of occasions. And I feel like we should put this out. Okay. You were a guest on the show last year. Yes. Uh, in Los Angeles. Right. There was a communication snafu. Mm, yes. That's the polite way of saying I screwed up. Oh, did, was it you that screwed well, up? I, it was a... I fired my entire team based on I figured. It was a lack of information. Okay. You arrived to our LA studio. Yeah. Looking tanned, rested, ready to talk. Yeah. And you had not been told it was a video podcast as well. Right, right. And thus you exposed your very shapely and attractive calves to the world. I was wearing short pants. Short pants. Which you looked great, but you rolled with it, and I really appreciate that because that was my my mistake. Oh, no, that's fine. So people can go back and watch that and get a real good look at my legs. This time I was prepared for video. You're covered. All the way down to the ankles. Yeah, and it's also it's mosquito season here in New York, so this is tell me about this it. is wise. <laughs> um, but since then, you know, I've had I've instituted a very strict tell people one hundred times strategy, and I was told a hundred times. Good, yeah, <laughs> and you look great. Thank you. Where, well, you I know you got I'm... the memo about wearing the same shirt as me, so I think <laughs> we're in good shape. Know, we're looking good. Two, the last time I saw you, yeah. was in Los Angeles in March. I was uh, asked to moderate this outrageous panel it was fun for comedy central there were yeah. like nine or ten extremely funny people on stage it was a pretty crazy panel it was too many people on uh, stage. it was too it, many people this was for paley fest and this mm-hmm. was uh, uh broad city and key and peel and workaholics and uh and you and and uh and nick Kroll. oh that that that's that so monster <laughs> and uh you so kindly sat next to me and i <laughs> gave me some very very kind sympathy chortles <laughs> You really got me through it. So, I, again, I, I want to thank you. I feel like I don't oh, know if this comes from an improv tradition of just being, like, supportive. Well, certainly, yes. Absolutely. But yeah, that, no, I could tell you were a quivering mess, and it was like, this is the... No. I, I was very no, anxious I about no, that. No, I did You seem fine, but you, you did come in like, there's a lot of people on this panel. Like, I got it's, to... It's nerve-wracking to try and... I mean, you, at least in that case, you didn't have to worry that somebody wasn't going to talk. You know what I mean? That was it was the, the opposite that's concern. That's the one thing I told myself. Yes. Um, as I was quietly weeping in the hour before right. going on It's stage. not like I'm going to have to work to make sure everybody gets their chance to talk. No. Right? It, in fact, it turned into a, a, a free-for-all pretty quickly. Pretty quickly, yeah. Uh, I don't think you got to ask that many questions in the end. <laughs> Can I be honest with you now? Yeah. I didn't have that many. Okay, well, yeah, good. I mean, I was, that was wise. Oof, I was not prepared. <laughs> No, but that was an amazing thing because these were – it was amazing to watch people who are so funny, yourself included, be funny from – I mean, I had the perfect vantage point. I was looking into everyone's eyes. Oh, uh-huh. But it was remarkable because it was kind of a free-for-all and everyone wanted to be funny and say their piece. But people were, I thought, and correct me if I'm wrong, pretty mm. generous with each other. Like everyone had a moment. Everyone was pretty supportive. It felt like a nice community even though it's not like you guys all go to the same office every day. Right. That's true. Yeah, no, that's true. I think I think that was a particular group of – 
Well, I hate to besmirch stand-ups, but it was not a group. You know, stand-ups are yes. individuals who have their own act and who I think on a panel, like a panel of stand-ups, right. each of them will be sort of playing their own game, I That's think. That's a good point, yeah. No, There were no stand-ups in this group. There were sketch people and improv people and, and you know, workaholics people. That's an ensemble. So yeah. I think there was very much a, a give and take and a you say something and I'll build on it type of spirit that's a very good point you know I, it actually makes me think about comedy central's current um renaissance one might even say i, I mean think so yeah really great shows right now probably mm-hmm. the best and funniest group of shows in the network's history and that's a very interesting point because the majority of the performers come from that collaborative supportive world of sketch or improv yeah which is a break from what i think their mandate was for a little while i don't know if it was actually a mandate but it was a trend mm-hmm. which was there's a hot stand-up, here's a show. There's a hot stand-up, here's a show. Yeah. And it's a different skill set. I think it is, yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I, so, so I think you do – it's also that there's a little bit more of a storytelling tradition in, in improv and long-form improv right. that a lot of these people are coming from. Um, so there's a little bit more storytelling and a little bit more collaboration feeling, I think, at Comedy Central. Let's go to your long-form and collaborative project, yeah. uh, Review. Yeah. Um, Review is almost hard to describe at this point. It, <laughs> it, it in the show, and for people who haven't seen it, please go see it right away. You play a character named Forrest McNeil, who yeah. is a sort of um, by the book, no short pants wearing uh, newsman, who right. has undertaken a rather unique uh, new quest. Mm-hmm. Um, which I feel free to jump in here. He he he's reviewing life basically, not not books or movies, as he says in the beginning. Right. We sort of understand. We don't get into a lot of Forrest's backstory. We don't we don't mess around. But although it's beginning to get revealed a little bit, bits and yeah. pieces. Yeah. Well, we understand that he he has been a film reviewer in a previous life, mm-hmm. right? Um, on the wall behind him in his office are a couple of film reviews. <laughs> what is this one? It's Film Reader Magazine. Or yeah. Something? Right. Something like that. I yeah. would definitely get that magazine. <laughs> Somebody asked me. Uh, Somebody asked me about it, and I was just remembering that one of the headlines of the reviews behind him is, American Pie Takes the Cake. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> great. I mean, that's, <laughs> so that'll give you an idea. And he framed that one and put it on his wall. Yeah. Like, that was... He nailed it. Some, yeah, that's some of his best work. So that'll give you an idea of what his previous life was. Yeah. But somehow or other, I, you know, we, we've discussed different origin stories, either that uh, this show review was Forrest's idea or it was Grant's idea. I think it was probably – I think it was – well, I don't know. But I, I, I often think because Forrest's commitment to it is so hardcore, I think it was probably his it's idea. absolute commitment. Yes, absolute and complete and total commitment. So what he's doing is instead of reviewing movies or food or books, he's reviewing life experiences yes. that anybody can ask him out there. Like if there's something you're afraid to do, something you've never tried, something you will never get the chance to do, or something you're considering – seriously considering doing. Ask Forrest what it's like. He will go out and he will do it. And he will evaluate it, and he will assign one to five stars to every life experience. And the thing that was totally striking about the first season is that this in in and of itself is a great idea and worthy of, you know, a sort of sketch-styled show where Forrest gets into these misadventures and then we reboot to zero. But this is not, in fact, the project that you're making here. Right. This is a deeply psychologically disturbing study <laughs> of a man in ruin and in yeah. crisis. Yeah. Because what he will do, a, a, a review he undertakes in the beginning of one episode will have strong repercussions on the next two mm-hmm. um, and ultimately on the whole season. 
this yeah. is an ongoing, um, what's the word? Uh, spiral. Yes. <laughs> I would say. Circling the drain. Yes. Yeah. He, uh, <laughs> right. So it's based on an Australian series, as we, as we talked about last time. And it's uh, their second episode. They have this wonderful segment, which was the thing that I saw and said, oh, yes, I want to adapt this uh, for American television. In their second episode, he has asked, what is it like to divorce your wife? Their character of Miles Barlow yeah. in the Australian version. And uh, and he does it, and it's and it's a pretty heavy scene. There's there's some tears, heavy for a comedy for sure. And then there's a custody hearing. That's part of the experience of getting divorced. Yeah. And in the custody hearing, the opposing side brings says, you know, well, look at what this man has done in just the last thirty days. Trained with Al Qaeda, hunted <laughs> whales and protected waters, and it's clearly stuff he's done yes. in his capacity as a life reviewer. Now, in their version, we had not actually seen those things. Right. right? So when we we adapted it, we felt like we had a little more opportunity to sort of to sort of plan that. And so, in our custody hearing scene, which happens in our fourth episode, the the things that he presents are all things we've seen in episodes one, two, right. three, and four. Um, but the point being that when I saw that moment of like you know bringing up things you've done in the past as a life reviewer against you, that's when I realized that's what this is. That's what it has to be. Yeah, it has to be that. Somebody has a life, a pre-existing life, and they're bringing these extreme experiences into their pre-existing life, and those experiences will interact with their pre-existing life. That's part of what this is, and part of that interaction is that it doesn't reset. It it keeps no. going. Like, it has to be that. It, it, it sort of destroyed his life, or certainly the version of it where we first met him. Yeah. Weirdly, in the first season, this only redoubled his commitment. Yet, you know, the, the, the greatest metaphor for his commitment, of course, being the now infamous Pancakes episode. Um, but in general, you know, when, when presented with all evidence as to what he has done and, and the effect it's had on him, he has chosen to continue. Because if he, I suppose, because if he gives up now, what was the point? <laughs> Which is a very scary position to be in. It is, yes. Well, so he, he his organizing principle, I guess, is that this is an extremely important community service and that he is uniquely qualified to provide it. Uh, yes. Two moronic assumptions, but he <laughs> believes them wholeheartedly. And so anything that anybody asks him to do is a, is a valid request and, and must be carried out to the fullest extent that he can. Well, one thing we don't know much of is that we, we, we don't have a sense of the ratings for the show because he does seem to have an audience. There are people asking the questions. Indeed. In certain parts of Iowa, for example, he will be recognized uh-huh. on the street. <laughs> Yeah. Um, not to spoil anything, but there are in upcoming episodes that does happen. That he does is, happen. Yes, the show is being put out there, but that right. is not a line you've chosen to fully uh, uh, cross in terms of the public reaction to this right. insane performance art piece. Mm-hmm. In fact, we have we've sort of gone out of our way to avoid it, and uh, we've sort of said that in a show like this, uh, they would not they they would steer away from the fact that people are watching it you know yeah. what i mean like uh i think probably on a real housewives or whatever type of situation in the times when people are gawking at the film crew and whatever right, they, right. they would try to cut that out That's because true. we're still trying to cover this person's actual life because and they're so, just real housewives yes, really they really are they're just real housewives. They're just like else anybody there. else yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they put they put their six inch pumps on one foot at a time <laughs> just like everyone else <laughs> yeah but so but we also think the show is not that popular. Forrest show is not extreme. It has not transformed his life in any real way. <laughs> no. I would say the opposite. Well, it's right, transformed right. it. There's, it's transformed it, but not in the sense that he, it's now because he's famous. No. Right. Um, so the first season ended um, in, a, in a 
fairly dark place. His uh, everything that he had come to think of as the status quo was blown to smithereens. Uh, he's lost his family, mm-hmm. um, and pretty much, at least in our last glimpses of him, had seemingly given up on <laughs> on all of it. Sure. Um, season two, back at it. Back so, at it. I'd like to know more about your planning process. You you had had the first season under your belts. You got renewed. Yeah. Obviously, Forrest is coming back to work. Has to. It has to. It's right there. <laughs> Life has to go on. Life has, Life has to, to be reviewed. Mm-hmm. What were the early meetings? This is you and I, I, it's Jeffrey uh, Blitz. Right. Jeff Blitz, who directs Blitz. every episode, also sort of co-runs the show with me create from a creative point of view. Yes. Along with his brother, Andy Blitz, is yeah. a, another of our executive producers. And in the earliest stages, it was the three of us plus um, Gavin Steckler, this wonderful writer who ended up writing uh, episode one and episode seven mm-hmm. this year, I think. Yeah. So you guys sat down. Mm-hmm. And what was in play? What were the first conversations like? Because you had to accomplish two things. You had to bring Forrest back into the fold. Mm-hmm. And then you had to somehow, somehow up the ante. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and the ante had been fairly, fairly upped. For sure. Well, one, I don't know. I don't know if it's it's too negative to call it an obstacle. It's just a fact <laughs> of the show is that if we're watching it, yes. it means that Forrest is doing it, meaning that there's no there's no behind the curtain. There's right. no we wouldn't come back to review and have a series of scenes in which Forrest is cajoled back on to review. Because that you wouldn't know. be part of the show. That's not part That's of the, the show. You've Our show is his show, right. is is the deal. So, you know, it, it felt necessary. You know, we did talk a little bit about, well, maybe we come back and AJ is the host of the show. And then through something that right. we see in the context of AJ's show, it becomes, you know, Forrest gets back into the show. I think but AJ wouldn't do it. I think she's too, she's too uh, smart, she's too right? Smart. <laughs> I think she's probably too smart. But then also to start with an opening credit sequence that's AJ Gibbs's review and then to start with her at home base and yeah. then to bring Forrest back into it, while satisfying for fans who really followed the show last season, yeah. would be a little alienating to people who are just coming to it. And also just a feeling like, wouldn't it be more fun to just hit the ground running with what the show is and let's just do that from the get-go? One of the greatest ongoing jokes and, and one of the most subtle is that Forrest is never really that must. Like, his outfit is the same. He's always wearing the same completely normcore uh, yeah, jacket. And, 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 and even if they're not pleated pants, they're pleated psychologically pants. and uh-huh, right, and yes. Psychologically that, pleated that's pants. Who, that's who he is, no matter right. what. No matter what he's gone through, he is ready to talk directly into the camera and say what happened. Yes. But actually, this season, very worth mentioning, he has a different tie. Oh. Uh, yes. See, again, this is I've missed this. I know. The season one tie was red. Season yeah. two tie is blue. Oh. And there was uh, – we had it in the, uh, you know, in the script that he makes a big deal out of it in the studio. But in the process of getting that episode from 31 minutes down to 21 minutes and 45 seconds, you, you, certain things had to go. You had to lose the tie. We had to lose the explanation that the tie is new and we have to just leave it to people to notice so it. So there's a whole backstory. There's a whole – Do you, you want to give us some of the insight of that? <laughs> no, this the, is what the, podcasts the, are for is to fill in the blanks <laughs> creatively and narratively. There's not – it was just that Forrest was going to make a big deal out of a – there is a rather significant change this season to <laughs> And you're thinking to yourself, oh, good, he's not going to destroy his life. He's made some change yes. that will help him survive this. And and it's – we have decided to change the tie. <laughs> you know, just that. Although he does have one significant change. He which does. Which is very exciting. This is a great narrative addition because it, it yes. really raises the uh, <laughs> the, uh, the suspense in which yes. he has added a veto – or two vetoes for the season. There is a veto booth. He is allowed to veto two reviews this season. Obviously, this is something that's designed to help him – 
avoid uh, risks to his life or, or illegalities or things that would terribly complicate his personal life. Having seen the first three episodes, this booth does none of those things. <laughs> I can exactly absolutely say that. If that's clear within the first minutes of the <laughs> show, the because Forrest, you know, I mean, it's a it's a strange thing, the veto booth. I think it, it came out of a probably a conversation between seasons one and two with his producer, Grant, where he was like, you know, but I, now I'm realizing that if I if, if I'm going to do everything anybody asked me to do, yeah. like terrible things could happen to me. And they have already. And is there anything we can do? Why don't we give you a couple of vetoes? You could be great idea. Yeah. But for Forrest, his commitment to the show is so strong that he doesn't want to he really doesn't want to deploy these vetoes. It would be he'd be bailing on on the whole premise of the show. So I think he's very conflicted about these vetoes. They're not to be used lightly. So even in the first episode, what's it like to get in a bare knuckle brawl? He could take one right away. He could right. take one right away. But then again, there's only two for ten episodes. That's right. I mean there's a bit of gamesmanship. Yeah. Blackmail is illegal. You go to jail for that, yeah. but he doesn't take it. He doesn't take the veto because you and, don't have to go to jail for it. And luckily it works out super well for him <laughs> and for everyone that he loves and knows. Um, yeah. Do you think this this commitment on Forrest's part comes from uh, uh, a, the same sort of bravado that causes Anderson Cooper to stand on you know in a war zone? Like, this is my job. I am the public face of this. Or does it come from something more profound like an, a, a legitimate belief in the nobility and service of what he's doing, which oh. is not to besmirch Anderson Cooper like no. I literally just did. But <laughs> let's not use Anderson Cooper. Let's talk well, about. Wait, like, what the, is the distinction? Well, because the, the, I think it's both of those. Well, things. I think there's some like like people, local weathermen who stand out when it's raining right. in Los Angeles, which is you know a never happens, but b right. people seem to think is a very risky endeavor. Right. No, uh, you know, yeah, we've seen the image of the weatherman being blown about by the hurricane. Right. He's and out like, there don't, and it's don't, like, this is unwise. Or do you remember the blizzard The blizzard car that uh, Don Lemon was driving around New York in? I mean, Don Lemon. I mean, that's a whole other. It's all. That's a whole other. It's all falling apart for that guy. <laughs> but. <laughs> no, I don't remember the blizzard car. Was it a specially designed car that was meant to withstand No, blizzards? it was an SUV that he was driving around in and it didn't snow. Oh, I see. So he was driving around saying, well, I, I, I see some some flakes falling from the sky, and the temperature is certainly cold, and these are some brave souls here, and they're all like, wah, you know. Poor Don. I know. Well, so, so yes, there. I, I guess the distinction you're making is, a, is that maybe there's a showmanship part of it of, yes. like, here I am doing something dangerous, you know, or or there's a – there's something more sort of civic-minded. And I think it is that second thing for Forrest. I, I think – I, I and and obviously a huge part of it is arrogance. This this belief that he is so intelligent, yeah, and, and that he he is so thoughtful, uh, and that he understands life in such a particular way that he will be able to bring a critical eye, the same critical eye that created American Pie That's takes the cake, the same critical eye that caused him to recognize the genius <laughs> right. of American Pie and the full extent to which it takes the it, cake, all of the cake. <laughs> Uh, that he will be able to apply that critical right. eye to life experiences in a way that will enrich humankind and help people. You know, that he he takes this project and his ability to do it that seriously. Do you – so you, you, you're you there with the Blitz Brothers. Yes. I hope you call them that because that's awesome. Sure, uh, sometimes. Do you begin making a list? Do you just start throwing out ideas for review topics? Is there a master document of all the things that – Forrest could do, should yes. do, you'd like him to do. There is, and it's broken down into various different headings of like physical huh. challenges. I see. And, yeah. Uh, but, well, we, so we started, of course, with a, a tremendous list of, of possible review topics left over from season one. Right. Uh, 
and new ones that we had thought of in the interim between seasons one and two. Um, but also, I, I would say the the earliest part of the writing process was to say, okay, at the end of season one, we allowed Forrest to do the only smart thing we've ever seen him do, which was to leave the show. Yes. <laughs> and it was the only victory he really had, yeah. you know, that uh, it, it, it became clear that he was going to have to choose between his wife and the show. And it seemed in that final episode that that was a choice that he could make. Yeah. And so, and he made the right choice. He left the show and he ran toward his wife. So here we are now. And the only thing we know is that he's back doing the show. Yes. (laughs) So where do we go from there? And so we came up with this idea that at the end of season one, he ran to his wife. He said, I have left the show. You and me, let's do it. And she whether they got together briefly or not mm-hmm. or whatever, she she had given it some thought. And she sort of said, you know what? You sacrificed so much and hurt me and our son so much for this project. Yes. Like, your judgment is critically flawed, <laughs> you know? And and you've hurt us, and I don't want to stand for that. And, you know, what, what that says about you and about us, I understand you've, said you've left the show now, but still, too much damage, too little too late. One of the many unique things about Review is that in a standard uh, sitcom, even contemporary sitcom, they generally are about families, whether they are, like, blood families or workplace families, mm-hmm. and they are the outcasts, and the world makes no sense, but together they make sense. Forrest is surrounded by very sensible people. Yeah. <laughs> it's remarkable, really. Like, almost everyone, from his right. ex-wife to the stripper named Shampoo, like, everyone has a pretty solid sense of themselves, what's right and what's wrong. Yeah, that's and true. And he's really, despite his conservative attire, he's really the only lunatic <laughs> on uh, on the show. Yeah, that's kind of true. I think I think he'll run into a few other lunatics this season. But, yeah, no, it, it is true. He, uh, uh, we. It's important to us that, obviously... Just about every venture he takes on, something will go terribly wrong. We understand that, uh, and we we like the idea that when it goes wrong, it's Forrest's fault. You know, it's yeah. You know, he is the author of his own demise. That's what makes it enjoyable to watch him fall. I think is that uh, he he brings it on himself in various ways, owing to his various blindnesses and his stupidity and his arrogance, confidence. Yes, yes. We're we're recording this the day the uh, second episode of the season will will air. Um, so I assume people have seen it. I don't want to spoil all of the great jokes in the first few, but I do I do want to just hone in on the very first one uh, from the season premiere. And I apologize mm-hmm. if people have not seen it yet. Please go see Tough it. Tough beans. This is one of the biggest laughs I had in 2015, which is his <laughs> return to the show. He chooses to accept the challenge, as we said, to review a bare-knuckled brawl. Yeah. Uh, this goes poorly for him when he challenges a gentleman in an ATM who responds by shooting him three times, right? putting in him in a coma range. for months. <laughs> Which was, a, that's a shocker. That's yeah. a shocking way Pretty to begin surprising. the season. Yes. Um, if, on, a, on a granular level, I'm curious about the writing and creation of this. Did you have Bare Knuckle Brawl in the list of things? At what point did someone throw out this should be first and then, oh, by the way, <laughs> right. he should immediately be shot yeah. and hospitalized? Well, we started we started with big picture stuff, and so we yeah. kind of decided that in the early going this season, 
if season one was about a guy whose pre-existing life is destroyed by this show, season two is a little more about a guy who is building a new life while also doing this show. Right. <laughs> right? So that was that was more important. And so the stuff about he gets a girlfriend and loses a girlfriend was sort of where we began okay. in our crafting of episode one. But then to sort of figure out what else could be in there. Let's start with something active was the beginning of that. <laughs> you know, let's yeah. start. Let's get right into it and in something active. What's it like to get in a bare knuckle brawl? Great. What are the sorts of things that could happen there? Lots and lots of beats about yeah. about that. We talked a lot about Any Which Way But Loose, which mm-hmm. is a great movie about bare knuckle brawling. Yeah. I, I, I believe that that movie would, would have been a great movie without the orangutan. Do you? That's I a do. controversial opinion. I'm sure, Many yeah. people think it's defined solely by the presence of an orangutan. I think the orangutan is a distraction from a very important story. Wow. How many movies can you say that about? <laughs> the orangutan is a distraction. Huh. But anyway, that aside. It was the one with Matthew Broderick and the orangutan. Do you remember that? Mr. Something? <laughs> Mr. Monkey? <laughs> Maybe. No, that we'll, we'll, you know. Yeah, we can get back to it. We can I'm, talk about we're that. We're going to circle back to okay, that because good. put a pin in it. But uh, so there were lots and lots of ideas for things that could happen with Bare Knuckle Brawl. Yeah. Lots of ideas for a, a whole journey and whatever. But something about it was not coming together in a cohesive way. So we did something that we almost never do, which was that we broke the writing room up into this was at the point at which we had our full writing room of eight people yeah. uh, into different groups to kind of throw things around and pitch things and whatever. And the result of that was the one group that came back uh, pitched us a bunch of ideas. And one of them was, what if he just gets shot right away? <laughs> he just the guy that he chooses to pick a fight with <laughs> such a good mows job. him down with bullets. And I'm pretty sure it was Rich Tallarico, who uh, I worked with at Man TV many years ago. He's a Second City alumnus. Yeah. And wrote for Key and Peele for many years. I'm pretty sure that that was his insane idea. And there was a lot of like, can we do that? Yeah. Is that too crazy? Uh, but I love it. I love it as a way because it's so stupid for Forrest to come back to the show and to tell us up top, I am back and I'm back for more. And then for that, immediately for him to be punished for that stupidity yeah. so quickly and then to be able to come back after that and to and to have AJ say to him, are you starting to think it was a bad idea to come back? And for him to say... Quite the contrary. <laughs> Just, okay. I, I also really love, for as as uh, detailed and comprehensive and more or less realistic, the timeline of the show is in that you know we see him go off and do these things and he thinks about them and how they're going to work and how they play out. Yeah. The timeline is fluid enough that he can be hospitalized in a coma for months. Right. <laughs> and then re- do rehab for what must have been months. Yes. And then return wearing yeah. the same outfit and ready to go. <laughs> Like, so, th- so that gives you a lot to play with if he can just take a, a year sure. detour. There's an episode uh, this season where it appears he might be going on an iron vacation. He might be going to prison. I, and I was sort of excited mm-hmm. that maybe you were going to do an eight-year time jump where oh. he actually did go to prison for eight years. You know, we talked about doing a big, long time <laughs> and jump. And when he comes back, yeah. like, people are, you know, there's maybe a flying car, but otherwise it's essentially the same. It's the same world. And he's ready to go. Yeah. No, uh, it is, it's a bit of a spoiler, but it's in the trailer there that, yeah, Forrest does end up in jail. There, there's a moment, too, uh, you've seen it already, where the uh, Forrest dad, played by the wonderful Max Gale. He's terrific. So great. Uh, he knocks on Forrest's door and tells him the police are here. <laughs> and Forrest's response, which makes sense in, in the context of it, is that he goes, at last. <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know, we've seen him get bored with some of these assignments because he can't get them to work. So this right. one, at least, yeah. keeps it moving. Right, exactly. The thing that seems most fun to me about making the show, I, it, maybe the filming is fun in its own way, and we'll talk about that. But mm-hmm. I, I love the puzzle pieces aspect of it, where you have these um, 
challenges, reviews, as you said, and there's some are physical and some are not. Right. But you then pair them, or how do you, what's a what do you call it when you pair three things? Like, oh, oh. You, you trio them, <laughs> and you trio these things. So three uh-huh. challenges or reviews, basically an episode, to sort of dovetail and make mm-hmm. sense of each other. And the third one occurs in the way it does because of the mistakes he's made in the first. Right. This seems to me this could be fun in the writer's room to sort of block yes. them off and see which ones relate in surprising ways. It's a lot of fun. I, I would say most often we do it uh, we do it after we've sort of decided what the reviews are going to be. Right. That, uh, right. You know, um, that's, uh, yeah, I mean, it feels like there would conceivably be other ways to do it, but we generally say, okay, if, if it's going to be this and it's going to be that and it's going to be that, what what is a way that that can tie in? And uh, Andy Blitz is particularly adept at that for some reason. Something about his brain, the way it works. Yes. Do you you uh, you know this isn't even a question because clearly you do. Uh, one of the great things about the show and your performance in particular is how willing you are to play the the pathos and the agony of sure. Forrest in a way. Yeah. Um, you seem to take to that. And I'm just <laughs> curious about your enjoyment in doing that because obviously yeah. we know you best as a comedic performer and you excel at that as well. But there is a there's some aching there, as as was mentioned in the first season. Well, I I really feel like I've always this is a complicated thought. Let me this is, let this me, is the forum for it. Good. I'll start in this weird place, which is that I once took a it was actually an audition workshop, an, an audition skills class mm. where I, I gather what this teacher did a lot of the time was to take naturalistic trained actors because it was in New York uh, and to prepare them to audition for comedies like sitcoms and things like comedy. that. That seemed to be like a lot of what she was focused on. So for somebody coming at her from a comedy point of view, it was a little odd. But uh, one thing she said in one class was she goes, comedy acting has nothing to do with naturalism. You need to forget everything you've learned huh. from Meisner and all your naturalistic acting and just focus on on this, 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 you know, like Commedia dell'arte, blah, 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 stuff. Like. And I'm sitting there going, what? Like, yeah. it made me so mad as somebody who, like, was such a huge fan of Charles Grodin, you know. Yes. And, you know, Midnight Run was to me, like, I mean, it's such an amazing movie because those are two guys – doing wonderfully naturalistic and hilarious performances. And Grodin, you know, came through that school. He was, he was, uh, I think Uta Hagen was his teacher, right? Yeah. He, he came with, along with Gene Wilder and, and Dustin Hoffman. They all kind of came up together through that whole world. Uh, so to me, I was like, no, those two things, naturalism and comedy have to go hand in hand and, and, and they'll make each other better when they're together, yeah. you know? So something about hearing somebody say that, and allowing me to kind of think about it is it has been a uh, it's been very important to me to feel like the realer you make something the funnier it can be you know i feel like that's always the case it's surprising uh i hope that person is unemployed now because <laughs> i think her point was that like if you look at something like cheers let's say and you compare it to like the the great commedia dell'arte characters where you have the young lovers mm. and you have the the uh innocent idiot arlecchino and yes. you have the pantalone by the way this is <laughs> grantland's leading commedia dell'arte podcast so you don't need to explain further uh, we, talk, yeah, we use I'm this sure. stuff all the time i have no doubt but but that these are archetypes and that they're not living real full emotional lives. Carla, the waitress, right. is perhaps she's really just there to throw what? japes. At We've it. met Listen. her ex-husbands. <laughs> we know her pain. Yes, right, true. But I would also say that, and I 
you know, I'm always happy to talk about Cheers, although I'm surprised that we are. Um, I love to talk about Cheers. Ted Danson was mm-hmm. a very serious, trained, stage, dramatic actor. Mm-hmm. I think his debut was in... I, I, no, it wasn't his debut, but I always remember that he was in a movie when I was a kid. I think it was called Cousins, which I assume was the inspiration for the Arrested Development uh, joke about the, you know, the dangerous cousins. Oh. Romance. There was a movie called... It was like him and Isabella Johnny mm-hmm. or something, and they like tumbled in the meadow but it was, it was that was a, it was a remake of a french movie that's right yeah that's right as was cheers weirdly <laughs> um what was that yeah. called um anyway my point being mm-hmm. he was good at being sam malone because he's a good actor uh-huh, and a good right. actor is fluid and creates yeah. a performance that is true in the moment regardless of what that moment happens to be right right I mean, right right i feel like that's kind of essential i th- th- there was a decent point there which was which was sort of like you know uh, to to naturalistic actors, like you, you need to sort of shed shed the weight and allow right. the jokes to just be jokes, which is I, I think was a, a useful thing to say for somebody auditioning for a sitcom. You know, well, also you need to but, stand out and be able to deliver the joke and yeah, you know yeah, this for that reason, right, right, right. But uh, for me, it, it felt all wrong, and and coming from the UCB theater where the Del Close's words about truth and comedy were yeah. so important to that whole scene. Um, I, it has been kind of an organizing principle for me that the, that the more real and the more grounded you can make it, the more funny the, the insane things that happen in that grounded real world will yeah. be. So, so to say that Forrest, you know, is a guy who starts out with optimism and then is truly affected by the bad things that happen to him seems obvious. Yeah. Well, I, it, it's it, this all is very interesting to me to think about because the I. If acting is really about presence and being present in the moment, I can think of no better training for that than, say, an improv class. Mm-hmm. Because you have to be, you have no choice. You cannot bring any anything pre-prepared. You cannot, you know, you can't sit in front of some onions and start crying and then bring that moment in. You have to have whatever's yeah. coming at you. And I feel like more actors should probably experience that. Whether they're good at it or not, I think that keeps you in touch with the moment. And if the moment yeah. happens to be a lighter moment and the universe you're in happens to be one where people can have intercourse with pies as they did in Forrest's favorite film. Indeed. You move on, but that's the reality of the moment and you play right. that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think it's possible it's something you do have to learn because it's possible as an improviser to not be affected as an actor because you're writing so much while you're improvising. I've I've seen uh, that. That's but, interesting. But I think it's a choice. It's it's a choice that an improviser needs to make at a certain point to just say that in addition to writing on my feet i am also going to be invested in the in the moments to sell the moments and to do you think of it as writing writing in your head i've never i've never considered it that way um yeah it all yeah absolutely part of it is particularly in a long form show particularly in something like the herald where you're ideally mm-hmm. by the end of this half hour piece tying together strands that have that have come before right. you know part of your brain is definitely gaming out where yeah. it's going to be and if you say this here what will that mean about yeah god that's that must be the the tension of it then because you're you you have to do justice to the overall heraldness of it the arc of yes. it but then you also have to stay present in the moment yep that's wow. what's hard about it that's interesting that's Who? why there are multiple levels of classes <laughs> wow yeah and then to be present in each individual moment fully and completely and yet some part of your brain planning where this can go at which level of training do you find out about xenu <laughs> it's not that's not about levels that's more about it's, you got to have uh, at least 200 grand in oh and then you yeah. get clear then you get yeah who are the great greatest 
improvisers that you've seen in person? You've, you've worked with many, and I'm sure many would put you in this category, but people that you've worked with, um, yeah. whether on stage in small theaters or you know on the set of larger productions. Wow. There's so many, so many great improvisers because I've been doing you know, UCB a long form improvising since 1996. And I've seen so many great people. <laughs> You've literally seen everyone who's ever done it. At this point. I feel like it, but, but different people are different, uh, are, yeah. are great at different things. Like, mm-hmm. uh, like I think of somebody like Brian stack, who is now writing right. for Colbert and who wrote for Conan for many years is such a wordsmith, uh, along with, I just did an ass cat show with Zach Woods oh, and yeah. he, he, from Silicon Valley, I, from Silicon now. Valley. And, and it's a, b- both of them, I put them in, in sort of similar schools of like, I cannot believe the words they just came up with and strung together into such a beautiful, perfect sentence. Right. And, and Brian Stack, when you're improvising with Brian Stack, he almost always ends the scene without, I think, meaning to because he has said something that so imperfectly encapsulates, encapsulates yeah. what's happened up to now that there's nowhere to go. <laughs> he tied, puts a bow on it. He and puts then you a bow to... on it and then, well, we've got to move on. But, huh. but for me, actually, just sort of on a, on, a, on a visceral and full enjoyment level, probably Ian Roberts is my favorite, my oh, all-time okay. favorite improviser. Um, partly because uh, he is always so invested as as an actor in the moments all the time, and he is such a phenomenally gifted straight man. Meaning that he his sense of logic in in the world is so it's just perfect. He his nickname in the early days in Chicago was the Machine, and and I think it's because he. He is so able to do an if-then process uh-huh. to, to just say, like, if this is true, this little piece of our comic premise, right. then that, 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 that. And he can, just, he can just go forever with that. And Ian has a claim uh, that he can do a good improv scene with anybody. And I've seen him test it, and it's true. <laughs> really? Yes. Like people who are not trained, people who are not used to yeah. – people who are nervous. Yep. Is it li- in any way like – um, like pick up basketball. There are always stories that they're the players who are the greatest playground players ever in New York City because of their showmanship and their improvisation on the court. Mm-hmm. But that is a different skill set than what it takes to succeed in something like the NBA. And so there are people who, you know, you look at Amy Poehler's amazing success, and I would say she's just a tremendous talent no matter what, and she's yeah. a great actor and a great improviser and comedian. But mm-hmm. she is someone who had the skill set or whatever it takes to do one thing really well mm-hmm. and do the other thing really well. Are there legends who have not been able to either translate onto the screen in that way or people who, yeah. I mean, it, 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 like, do improvisers talk about, like, oh, there's the, the Rafer Alston of improvising, like the one who was just the greatest ever. But, and I know you don't want to name someone because that might suggest right. that their career hasn't fully achieved what it might. But um, I, For sure there are. As a matter of fact, I'll say... Somebody like Adam McKay is a guy who is rarely in front of the camera. Right. But to see him improvise is is stunning. And you can see – you can understand uh, why his writing is so – is what it is. This is Adam McKay who made Anchorman and Step Brothers right. and uh, wrote the script for Ant-Man and is now writing the book for a Archie Comics musical. Oh, yes. I just read that. I'm excited yeah. about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, he is a, a wonderful writer on his feet and yeah. in a way. Like when I see him improvise, I, I fully understand what's happening in the room when he's yeah. writing a script with somebody. I, I see it happening, um, but also a, a excellent uh, performer and incredibly engaging and hilarious. Well, let me ask you this then, since this itself is an improv interview. We're just we're flying blind here. Yes. Um, 
one of the things that I first heard about from Adam McKay's filmmaking process mm -hmm. is the idea that, you know, you're shooting the film, you have the script, but that's basically just the blueprint. And then yeah. so he's famous for shouting things at Will Ferrell or whoever else to just, like, make it crazier in the moment, make it weirder, yeah. and then things emerge. And then the movie emerges, so much so to the point that Anchorman, there were two movies, and they released oh, right. Wake Up Ron Burgundy as the alternate movie that they shot because they did so, so much. Um, I know Apatow does this as well, and, mm -hmm. and great writers like uh, Paula Pell like, are on set shouting things and oh, helping. Yeah. Do you think, without you know, not necessarily criticizing people who you know who are your friends, can there be too much of that? Because one thing that I felt... Mm -hmm. And I know you wanted to talk about summer movies, so this is a good transition. I saw, oh, yeah. <laughs> I saw, I know it's a big topic for you. <laughs> you love uh, film review. Um, I saw Trainwreck, which I enjoyed so much of. Yes. But there were moments where I felt it achieving liftoff as a complete, almost old-fashioned kind of movie. Mm -hmm. and, there, and then there were scenes where I was like, well, that must have been really funny in the moment that they got that. And he kept it in. And I uh -huh. wish that he hadn't. I wish oh, yeah. that it had been like, this script is good. Look at these performers. We got it. Right. We don't need the scene with Marv Albert or whatever. We don't need that this time. Even I have not it's a seen movie. Trainwreck, but I have had Sp that. Spoiler alert. Yes. Uh, Marv Albert. Marv Albert is in it? Yeah. Well, now I'm going. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but I have had that feeling watching some movies of like, uh, yeah, this this is an improvised moment that is meant to be appreciated as an improvised moment. You know yes. what I mean? Like, uh, it, it's clear that this was a moment that the actors had fun with. Right. Which uh, is important for which them is, to have fun. Yes, exactly. But it doesn't necessarily help the movie in, in other ways. It's yeah. just meant to be appreciated as, oh, yeah, these these funny guys had some fun for a little while here. And, yeah, those aren't always necessarily my favorite things. I'd love to feel like like an improv something that came out of improv improvising – uh, is organic to the scene that it's in and the movie right. that it's in. And you've been in projects that, I'm, that I think have probably maintained that balance well. I'm, I'm curious about how that balance works on review, but I would point to like Eastbound and Down. Um, some of that stuff couldn't have been written down. Uh, yeah. And that's what it is. I mean, it's defined by that anarchy in a way that actually works. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, some of, some of those scenes were directed by Adam McKay in exactly the style that you're talking about. In fact, there's a scene that... Um, uh, I'm. It's uh, Kenny Powers is on the pitcher's mound. Gym class today is just watching him work on his pitching, and so is band class because Steven Janowski has brought the band there right. into the dugout to watch Kenny Powers pitch. And I come out to the mound to just say, "What's happening exactly?" From an educational point of view, right? that's your motivation. You're walking out. Yes. That's what you're told. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that scene, there was a script. There was always a script, but. Adam McKay was directing and was just like, you know, throwing out suggestions from behind the camera and encouraging a total sense of just like, we know what the story of this scene is. Yeah. That Kenny Powers is completely selfishly working on his pitching during school time yeah. when he's supposed to be teaching these kids something. The kids are doing nothing <laughs> but sitting there and watching him. <laughs> and and the band director is there to offer his guidance in whatever way that <laughs> yeah. he can. And his kids are are also being – their time is being wasted. And so I've got a problem with it. Yep. From a sensible point of view, they have to somehow either sell it to me or Dismiss get rid you. of me some yeah. other way. So here we go. <laughs> Let's just go. And how did how many ways did it go? How long did it go? It went lots of ways. We got somehow bogged down in uh, uh, me inviting him to a party <laughs> because there's another element to it, too, which is by that point in the season, my character still believes that he and Kenny Powers could maybe be friends. Yeah, he's still very impressed by him. That's right, exactly. Before yes. he finds out what's actually happening to his right. life. 
And, and there's a burgeoning friendship between Kenny and Stevie Janowski, which is a little bit like, I don't like this. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, he, you and I are going to be friends, and he's weird anyway. You know? Yeah, you, I mean, you're a marathoner, right? Like, your character has it all. We have things in common. Yeah, right, you're exactly. Athletes. We're our athletes. That's right. You both love the same woman. I mean, you have plenty of things to talk about. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, yes, I do remember, if there's anything on the cutting room floor of that scene that I'd love to see again, it was... Uh, a, a lot of the talk about how great this party is going to be that I'm throwing and his sort of reactions to the things that I have planned. <laughs> Do you bring any of that to review or is, is review a... It, so there is yeah. there's room for improv, there's room for flexibility within the scenes? Yeah, I mean, I have worked on shows like Reno 911 where there is right. never a script at all and it's just kind of like, uh, so in this scene we thought you would do this and you would do that, and whatever, and you over the course of multiple takes, things get set, but right. it's fully improvised. Um and I love that way of working, but Eastbound and Down, it was sort of more the model that I think we're following for a review, which is that there's a script that if we just shot this script, we'd have a great show. Yeah. And we worked really hard on it. We, when, when we get to the set, we're on our third or fourth draft of the script, and and it's great. But we also sometimes just say, let's tell the story of the scene in our own words, you know, yeah. because it will be more spontaneous and alive, and we'll find things. Um and also, Jeff Blitz and Andy Blitz are on set every day throwing ideas, new ideas. And then there's also this thing that happens a fair amount of the time where we get to the set and we open up the script for the day and we just kind of go, eh, I don't want to do that. Really? <laughs> yeah. That's the benefit of having your own show, I guess. Okay. Yes, exactly. Yes. I, I'm, able to, I'm able to flip through it and go, I don't want to say all this. Like, let's do this as voiceover. Sometimes I'll say, this, okay. this will just be voiceover. You know. And so we were constantly remaking things. And the editors, I think, favor improvised moments over scripted moments because there is something a little more spontaneous and genuine about them. Is there an example you can give me from the first half of the season that was particularly improved in the moment or or changed in the moment? <sighs> uh, I know that you're removed from it as well, which just makes the question a little, little tricky. Yes. Well, here's a perfect example, actually. Uh, one of my favorite scenes of our first episode is the scene where Forrest reveals that he's going to be blackmailing um, uh, Allison Tolman as his girlfriend. Yeah, right? She's great, by the way. It's she's wonderful so good. In this. She's, oh, man. She seemed to have bought in immediately and understood what she was, what yes. she was in for. Oh, she was perfect. So all that stuff were like, you know, she she's blathering on about the Terranea Resort and the massage couples package and whatever. And Forrest is <laughs> taking out the pill bottles and setting them out. And all that dialogue about... You know, these these were legally cleared names, Edith yep. Reinhardt and Aquanetta Hamilton, and all that stuff was was baked into the script. But yeah. then from that point forward, when it, it when it becomes a what is the matter? What are you doing in it? Like it, it it becomes an emotional conversation. Yeah, it was a felt like a much better idea to just say, yes, there's a script for this, but we have to do what what we can sell. Yeah. You know, we have to do what feels right, right and what we can make feel real in this documentary style world. So don't, if anything feels like too many words in your mouth or feels weird or feels like not emotionally earned, forget it. Just like, let's have this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I love the, the, the presence of the wine glasses in that scene. <laughs> there's, there's something that's so sort of banal and then infuriating, like the wine glasses keep getting filled. Right. Yeah, you, yeah, both, yeah. you both are the type of people who both say immediately, thank you. No, thank right. you so much to the waiter. In the middle of, yes, you're being blackmailed for a crime you've committed and then the wine glasses get refilled. So when you made this season, and you obviously had to, uh, we said, up the ante, um, and I 
don't want to know how it ends in any way because I'm very excited to discover for myself on Comedy Central, uh, Thursdays at 10 p.m., 9 Central. 9 Central. I'm good at this, right? Yes, very good. did you feel any desire to, like your former colleague in the Herald, uh, put a bow on it to, to to end the season in a place where we could have ended Forest Adventures? Do you do you have a sense of a potential third season yet, or is this getting way ahead of of, uh, of ourselves? It is getting way ahead of ourselves, uh, but there is there has been some talk of what could happen in the future. But and I will say this ish kind of thing, yeah, which is that we season one did end. It, it the story ended really. Yeah. I mean, it would have been a satisfying, and, and which was something we did very intentionally because uh, we we knew like at the time that we wrote that it was the summer of 2012, and Broad City had not premiered yet, right. and Amy Schumer wasn't on yet, and the Kroll show hadn't was just about to premiere. Yeah, and Nick uh, Keen Peel was just in the early days. It was a somewhat different network, and we knew that we were making a show that felt odd for that network. Yes. <laughs> That feels a lot less odd today, but in the summer of 2012, it felt odd. And so we were not setting out to make a noble failure. Like we were not but, – but we did say to ourselves, there's a decent chance we're not going to get a second crack yeah. at this. So why don't we end it in a satisfying way? And then if they, we get a second season, that will be our problem. And it was. <laughs> but so that is not necessarily something that we uh, wanted to do in season two. I'll say that – but that uh, that's not a spoiler. No. That seems yeah. all right. Okay, good. It, I, I'm sure you saw this as well. There was an interesting um, cover story in the New York Times Magazine a few weeks ago about Comedy Central. And oh, about yeah. a guy we both know, Kent Alterman. Kent Alterman. His work, uh, you know, uh, basically, as you alluded to, changing the, the tenor of the network, changing the logo, certainly, which was his most lasting effect. He's <laughs> very passionate about that. <laughs> yeah. um, but it talked about this strange dilemma that, that I think a lot of networks find themselves in, but it's particularly um, affecting Comedy Central, which is the network has never had funnier content. I hate using that word, but it's true. Content. I'm uh, a con- well, I'm a content creator. Yeah, that's who you are. That's what you do. You, uh, me, I'm a culture yeah. disruptor, but you're a content generator. Across platforms. Oh, good for you. You're going to do great at this. But this is what I'm saying because – there's more funny stuff on Comedy Central than ever before, coming from Comedy Central, because it's yeah. not just on. Right. Uh, they've, you know, they've website and, and mobile and on YouTube, yeah. um, and probably, this is the key word being probably, more people are watching and laughing at this stuff than ever before. Mm-hmm. But that's the economics of that have not caught up. So ratings are actually down on the network, and it's sort of hard to figure out how anyone can profit from this. Yeah. Um, that must be – I mean, I don't know how much time you spend thinking about it, but actually – Too much. Well, because part of you is the on the business side. You're the showrunner right. of the show. You're producer. So you have to think about these there things. There are some times when I think what I really ought to do is just make the show and let other people worry about all that stuff. But <laughs> it's hard to Probably. do. Probably. And I had a funny experience where the day after – no, it was it, – right before the show was about to premiere, the first episode – I recorded um, a takeover of Comedy Central's Sirius XM radio station, whatever, for an hour. But I was told that it was going to air the day after our premiere. So I said, can you give me a list of places where people can watch Thursday's episode on Friday? Yeah. Right? And I was provided with, to me, a comically long list of places where you can do that. And I was – this feels like a very weird moment yeah. that a show will air on a cable network at 10 o'clock on Friday. But if you miss it there, you can catch it in 
seven but, different places. But also that the, the, the thrust of the entire business is still devoted to getting you to watch right. review at 10 p.m. on Thursday and Comedy Central, 9 p.m. Central. All the press that, that you're doing, right. the advertisements, the commercials they're running on the network and online. But the majority of people who watch review probably won't watch it at 10 p.m. They'll either watch it time-shifted on the DVR mm-hmm. or they'll watch it on the Comedy Central website or whatever. Or they'll watch it months from now. That's right. In a way that will be totally enjoyable to them, but uh, not measurable by ratings. <laughs> it's know? odd. Yeah. It's odd. It's, it's never been time. better to be a TV fan. Um, right. Because everything is catered to, to you. To, to, I mean, put us in that category sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the economics of of that enjoyment haven't shaken out yet. Like watching the full season, the first season of review just over a weekend would be great fun. Yeah. And you're I happy know. people are watching it, but that's not the same thing. I, I, I'm beginning to feel like just for me, I, I, I don't care where people watch it, to be honest. Like I put it out there and I hope people enjoy it. And I, I recognize that the people who are, have binged watched it, in yeah. other words, waited until it's all out there yeah. and watched it have had a very enjoyable experience of that. And that's important because that means that, it ha- it will live forever, and, you know. And those are the people who will appreciate the tie change, the, yes, the tie exactly. joke, because they will so... appreciate the tie change. Now, but you know, there's obviously there's a business perspective that says, please watch it every week because it yeah. comes out, right? Because yeah, we want to make more. Because yeah, by the time make you're make, watching it, yeah. who knows what where we'll be? But my hope is, and my belief is that Comedy Central, uh, uh, the conversation that we're having is one that they're having all the time, and they understand that there's seven places you can watch it the next day, and that crunching those numbers is part of their uh, evaluation of the impact that a show is having, and you know, they're in the content business. Absolutely. we got to generate content. Um, speaking of content, did, did you really want to talk about summer movies? No, 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 not really. No, I was just – I just have this thought about summer movies. I want a thought. This okay. Is a, this is a place. You're a thought leader. I'm a thought leader. Let's just keep Thank using you. these terms. <laughs> uh, I was uh, heading into the weekend with some people, and there was some talk about what are you going to do this weekend, and somebody said, oh, I'll probably see Mission Impossible. It's like a shrug, like – you know what I mean? Because – it's out, and I thought to myself, here's what you should do with mm-hmm. summer blockbusters, mm-hmm. and maybe with all movies. Oh. But this is this is a bad thing for me to say. I th- I thought to myself, why don't you wait six months and then tell me if you still want to see it? It's a great great question. And the answer is no. The answer is maybe. It's <laughs> definitely not yes. Right. Because it's the marketing of something. But now I feel like I should not be saying this because I, th- this marketing is – I don't want people to wait six months to decide whether they want to watch review. Oh, well, that's very different. It's – it's well, okay. It's not – it's similar in many ways to Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation, but Rogue Nation. different enough. Yeah. Um, it is an interesting thing, though. That, that, I mean there's no conversation where humans can sound older than – you know, within bemoaning the state of Hollywood movies because yeah. there have always been bad movies and blockbuster movies. But – it is striking, I think, in these last few years especially, the like the hype EKG of things to the point where I don't even remember the second Avengers movie. I right. cannot believe there that was go. this year. Mm-hmm. That feels like it was a long time ago. Yeah. And I did see it, you know, and that was two months ago, but that could have very well be a decade ago. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, yeah, with, with Mission Impossible, like it, the, the choices are pretty stark. You can either join the party yes. in those first three days or, you know, two years from now, oh, it's free now. It's right. on uh, HBO. Okay. <laughs> it's Saturday. Maybe. Well, yeah. sure. I don't know. They're both good choices. Join the party. Be a part of the conversation on Monday morning. But listen, you're a guy who walked mm-hmm. into the studio today and said, uh, let's talk about Inglorious Bastards. 
That's true. Which is a movie that was a you know a, a, a cultural thing. People enjoyed it. It was nominated for some Academy Awards. Oh, was it? A number of years ago. Uh, yes. But to you, it's fresh as a daisy. I because just watched you, it you just, for the first time. You just saw it. And all I want to do is talk about it. This is amazing. So you, So you're the one who's hurt here, though. Because the culture has moved on. We don't want to talk about that. That's true. I tried to engage in a conversation about it. And you don't remember the important moment when he orders a glass of milk for Shoshana in the restaurant. And I'm wondering, does he? is that because he knows who she is or for, not? For the first few moments, I thought you were testing me. Is, that was not a scene that really happened. You were just testing my knowledge. Oh. But then no, I remembered I could happened. see it. Really, my memories of that movie are uh, Sam Levine from Freaks and Geeks was there as a yes. the soldier. Right. Uh, Brad Pitt's haircut. I remember that. I remember mm-hmm. some shooting in a movie theater, and I remember um, uh, a Fassbender scene. Fassbender scene was totally amazing. What uh, was that? When he he in the bunker when they're like there's the there's the long, stressful conversation. Oh yeah yeah yeah. You you haven't seen the movie? I just busted <laughs> you. You don't even see it. I don't know what it's meant by a Fassbender scene. Oh, well, Michael Fassbender, the the, the the performer. Oh, oh, you thought I meant like 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 that's Rainer, a kind like, of a scene. Oh, like the like the German director. Fassbender. It was a classic Fassbender scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like, oh, yeah. it's classic. Yeah, the, <laughs> the, the, the director was dying and on drugs and right. No, you confused me. But Sorry. Uh, I'm I I will never forget Inglorious Bastards <laughs> to the extent that you've forgotten it. <laughs> I will keep it in my heart forever. How do you? How is your cultural consumption? Because you're working in you work in the biz. Sure, you're making a show. Yes, I'm I, a dream weaver. You are. It's beautiful to be around you. There's just such a healthy aura yeah. of creativity and kind of like birth. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, it's it's basically yeah. Uh, I watch a lot of TV for my job, and I, that's yeah. not something you could ever complain about. But there is too much uh, I think, yeah. to mm-hmm. to to take it all in, to appreciate it enough, to to give it space to breathe. Yeah, where where are you? Where are you with all this stuff? You're clearly t- you're time agnostic if you're just watching Inglorious Bastards. Now. Exactly, that's right. Yeah, I'm not great about keeping up with anything in particular. You know, and also, you know, when you're married, it's it's a it's a conversation. It's a, you you know there's a negotiation. Be, it's a negotiation. You got to get to a point of agreement on yeah. what you're going to watch. But uh, so yeah, we but we we are doing that thing that I hope people are doing in regards to review which is that if i've heard enough times that people love something you know i then i don't care who else i know is watching it i will check it out because you know but i would also say you have a distinct advantage not only because review is very good Mm -hmm. um but it's a half hour that's true and it's funny but mostly that it's a half hour and Mm -hmm. i've been writing that i think actually some of the best work in tv is happening in half hours Mm. because the drama has been the hour-long drama is sort of stagnated, I think. Like, people have become used to certain tropes and darkness and heaviness. Mm. But just in general, it's a buyer's market for, for TV and for entertainment. And if you yeah. if it's a half hour, mm-hmm. there's a great comedy this summer called Catastrophe that Rob Delaney yes. and Sharon Horgan made. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. When people, I mentioned it, people are like, I don't have time for another show. And I was like, what if I told you six episodes, half hour each, you bang it out in three hours. They were like, it's like I'd given a drowning person water. Yeah. They love sure. that. Sure. Absolutely. That matters. That makes sense. Yeah, the idea of ten hours of something Oof. looks looks tough from the start. Yeah, I mean, plus yeah. review is what each episode is twenty one, twenty two minutes. Twenty one forty five is what they've told us to keep it to. Well, this is a winning strategy. <laughs> this is. Um, I should probably let you go. You have a, another talk show, a lesser talk show to be on. Yes, uh, you have to go to Seth Meyers. Did we burn any of your content for that? <sighs> I don't know. No, I don't think so. Okay, good. You saved some. A game, A material? I, but no, I'm just going to go home nap. I'll just see if I can reschedule take it for a right time. That's probably because you're just interviewed out? Yeah, I'm just interviewed out. Yeah, take They'll that. understand. Take that, Myers. <laughs>
You don't you don't send your guests here first if you, unless you want them <laughs> wrung out like a washcloth. Um, Andy, always a pleasure to see you. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me, despite our snafus with the wardrobe and no problem. Um, review Comedy Central Thursdays, ten p.m. or ten other places afterwards. Yeah. For sure. But it's a terrific show. Including Verizon FlexView. Have you ever heard of that? No. Me neither. I'm going to go check it out now. Check it out now. (laughs) Thanks so much, Andy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on Podcasts.